Previously on Dirty Sexy Money. The landlord says, This is our last episode. Gather the staff. I got a big old whopper to drop on you. Well, well, well. The day has finally come. This is the last episode of The Society Show. What's your point, Mr. Mathematics Professor? Lloyd replies, We could just get a new studio for like a tenth of the cost. The good news is, our accountant, Lloyd Watley, is hard at work finding a new studio. Yeah, and our lawyer, Gil Briscoe, he's currently looking to sue our landlord's ass for all he's worth. This is William Hong, and you're listening to The Society Show. Ooh, somebody stop me. Oh, yeah. Big brother, what? Hey, now. Broadcasting live to take across the nation and the world from the Lorena Bobbitt Theater in the home of the White Collar Crime Hall of Fame, beautiful North Seattle. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is the Society Show. And now, your host, the Larry Sanders of podcasting, Christian Patterson. Hello, hello. As the announcer said, we are now in the beautiful Lorena Bobbitt Theater. Welcome to the Society Show. Do you believe in society's laws? We have reached our fifth season, the fifth season of the show. Huge accomplishment right there. Even though this show's seasons are mostly arbitrarily decided, how many other podcasts can you say reach their fifth season? Many don't have seasons, so they're still stuck in season one. Uh, get on our level. This is the pressure cooker. So, you may be wondering, well, what's new with the show? Well, one upgrade we got to the show is we finally can afford an unpaid intern. Hold your booze, I know, let me explain. I know what some of you might be thinking. How can an unpaid intern cost money if it's an unpaid intern? Well, what people don't understand is we actually do pay for our unpaid intern. It's just the money goes straight to his college, not to him. So when people call unpaid interns modern-day slavery... Um, no, sweetie, you're way off base. It's more like modern-day feudalism. You're right, sweetie. I'm not cute. I'm drop-dead gorgeous. I declare fealty to the intern's university in exchange get to use his labor. 
So I will introduce the unpaid intern, but uh, I have to explain something real quick. He has an unconventional name. His name is Ben Laden. That's Ben. Ben Laden, not Bin Laden. B-E-N-L-A-D-E-N. I struggle with enunciating the difference between Ben and Bin. So just so we're clear, yes, it's Ben Laden. His name is George. George what? Georgia... Um, and Ben explained to me that Laden is actually a German last name, although not a particularly common one. He was born on September 10th, 2001, and his parents weren't the most news-savvy people, so they had never heard of Osama bin Laden before they named him. And then on top of that, I was also born on September 10th. So when I learned his birthday, I had to hire him. He's exactly 10 years younger than me. People who share the same birthday, September 10th, we have to stick together. And there are many duties for the unpaid intern. So, you know, he buys me coffee, he shines my shoes, he gets on his hands and knees so I can use his back as a footrest, all the usual stuff. But his main duty will actually be as the show's mascot. That's right, Bin Laden will be joining us shortly wearing his mascot costume. And another thing is our mascot is actually sponsored. We got a sponsored mascot, so I would like to thank our sponsor, Acra, also known as the Association of Concerned Reindeer Aficionados. They funded our new mascot named Doodoo the Reindeer. That's his name, Doodoo the Reindeer. Acra bought the costumes and demanded we say this. The Association of Concerned Reindeer Aficionados' goal is to bring awareness to reindeer. Many people are unaware that reindeer are real animals. And for those of us who know reindeers are real, we still only think about them at Christmas time. Acker's mission is to educate people on the actual existence of reindeer and remind them that reindeers exist all year round, not just Christmas time. Thank you for sponsoring the Society Show, the Association of Concerned Reindeer Aficionados. And now, what we've all been waiting for, we're finally going to see Bin Laden in the Doodoo the Reindeer costume. Please welcome... Bin Laden dresses Doodoo the Reindeer. Oh, there he is! Woo! Oh my gosh, he's dancing like crazy! Whoa, was that a backflip? I had no idea Bin Laden had these types of skills. Sorry to all the listeners, but this is truly just, this is a sight to behold. Unbelievable, just 
beautiful maneuvering. Thank you, Bin Laden. That was a moving performance as Doodoo the Reindeer. Now, before we get into the meat of the show, before we really start getting into it and I move on to the next segment, I would like to plug something. The Society Show, going into the fifth season, now has a Patreon. You can support the show through Patreon, and there's a link on the website, societyshow.net. And I just want to say, there is no exclusive content on the Patreon. There might be some in the future, but if you support the show, you will get perks like a shout-out on the show, stickers, you can even be invited as a guest on the show. There's other perks, um, but also, I will never make any of the regular conventional society show episodes behind a paywall. So if you'd like to support the show, you can, but uh, you won't be getting new shows out of it exclusively. I want those to always be free, but there's plenty of other perks. So check out societyshow.net and scroll down to the Patreon section. Thank you. Now, let's get into the news. So, for the news, I have a couple weeks of news to catch up on. So, this might not be breaking news, but, uh, I mean, this has never been a breaking news show. I like to go in-depth into news that I think matters, so, uh, and I think all this stuff matters. So, let's get into it. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. On July 7th, Time Magazine, or I mean rather Time Magazine's website, time.com, they published an exclusive report. Uh, Here's the headline. Quote, exclusive documents reveal Eric Prince's Ten billion dollar plan to make weapons and create a private army in Ukraine. And if you're a regular listener, you remember that the Society Show has an official denunciation list. You just made the list! I like to check in on people who have been on the list, and Eric Prince was the fifth person added to that denunciation list. So of course I gotta talk about this. Let me quote from the article, quote... According to interviews with close associates in confidential documents detailing his ambitions, Prince hoped to hire Ukraine's combat veterans into a private military company. Prince also wanted a big piece of Ukraine's military-industrial complex, including factories that make engines for fighter jets and helicopters. His full plan dated June 2020 and obtained exclusively by time this spring includes a roadmap for the creation of a, quote, vertically integrated aviation defense consortium, end quote, that could bring $10 billion in revenues and investment. Now, this, to me, signifies a shift in geopolitics, and I will get a lot more into that shift with our main segment. 
And that shift is the privatization of the military. Of course, like, this shift is best represented by the proliferation of private military companies in general. But at the same time, private military companies can and have exist, existed and still be relatively powerful without being, like, a paradigmatic shift to how things operate. But I do think it reaches a point of a paradigmatic shift. Uh, I don't know if that's how you say it, paradigm, but as a as an adjective, paradigmatic. Um, I'm not sure, but it is a paradigmatic shift uh, for a guy making such a major multi-billion-dollar transaction to privatize the state military of a foreign country. And on top of this, I mean, Ukraine already was like a breeding ground for militia activity. And spoiler alert, like most militia activity, it was far right in nature. I don't believe there's much left wing militancy whatsoever in the Ukraine, but there are plenty of neo-Nazi militias in Ukraine. Ultimately, I think where this whole thing is going is where government entities aren't even perceived to be in control of the capitalist class and private enterprise anymore. I mean, and that's kind of a smokescreen to begin with, but like, it's not like, oh, the government's going to come in and keep these people in check. No, a lot of governments around the world have been reduced to being one of the many power brokers when it comes to geopolitics. State governments are simply in, are increasingly simply being seen as one of the groups with power within this like power struggle uh, rather than the, the the people on top kind of keeping it all in line. So the state governments are increasingly negotiating power with corporations and private citizens and private armies. And sometimes those entities even have more power than the state governments. It's the privatization of state power. And this will come up again with our feature story later. But yeah, this is a pretty bleak development. And for the next story, if you listen to the Society Show Society. Season 4, you would know that that was recorded on the hottest day of the hottest heat wave um, the Pacific Northwest has ever seen. I mean, just listen to it. I could barely even talk normally in the heat. I sounded all subdued and... It wasn't good. And anyway, a study that, for the record, is not yet peer-reviewed, but I'll, I'll put that out there. I'm not really sure how much more validity peer-review adds, but I do think it adds a lot. Um, and kind of any crank can publish a non-peer-reviewed study. So I don't mean to like undercut my own source. I just want to be transparent about this. 
but the study claims that it would have been virtually impossible for that heat wave to have happened without global warming. And you might be thinking, well, like, of course global warming contributed. Duh. But uh, it's even more troublesome than that because they these scientists don't even think it could have been possible let alone like global warming pushed it over the edge and made it more more hot it wouldn't even be possible without climate change and the study also claims that at this rate within 40 or 50 years this type of extreme heat wave could become relatively commonplace in the Pacific Northwest. So you're saying in like 40 or 50 years, this type of thing could happen every 5 to 10 years. And keep in mind, I mentioned this on the season finale of season 4, heat is by far the most dangerous extreme weather. Earthquakes. What? Hurricanes. What? Monsoons. What? tornadoes flooding they're all scary but he is actually the really scary one and for this next story um i'm not gonna go into it too much i will probably do a whole episode about this as it nears but joe biden is still planning for the u.s to withdraw from afghanistan fully by august 31st and um what i wanted to add to that is Iran is actually planning on hosting high-level um, Afghan peace talks at, because as the U.S. pulled out, the Taliban totally seized on that opportunity, as most people would have predicted they would have. Um, if you're not familiar with like what's going on in Afghanistan, there's basically the U.S.-supported government that has always had very tenuous control, while the Taliban still had like enormous amounts of power in a, a bunch of little pockets throughout Afghanistan. As soon as the U.S. left, uh, the Taliban started expanding and confronting the Afghanistan government. In the fact that Iran is going to have peace talks with Afghanistan, I mean, this really just goes to show that, in my opinion, the main reason the U.S. was in Afghanistan was, at this point, obviously the resources. They were there for the opium. They were there for the minerals. All of that type of stuff. Um, and with the U.S., but the, the main reason they were just perpetually occupying it was because it is kind of a frontier country or that's how it's seen by people who want to extract profits it's a total frontier it's rich in resources um it's just perfect for the taking and now that the u.s is leaving iran is getting more interested and, you know, uh, as we've heard, uh, I'm sure China is extremely interested. Now, I don't think in either of those countries 
or any country will just be like, oh, we're invading, uh, we're invading Afghanistan now. Oh, try to do something about it. Because, oh. I mean, some Americans think that'll happen, but that's only because the U.S. government does that all the time. And the U.S. government is like... Uh, exceptional in that sort of mentality of just like oh, we're invading you what are you gonna do about it oh, no one cares oh, the UN's not gonna do anything because they, they do what we say huh oh. the US is the only country who acts like that so I, I, I'm not really sure what to say about this again I'll talk about it more in the future but uh, that's where we're at now Uh, a couple weeks ago, at the very beginning of July, uh, an underwater pipeline burst in the Gulf of Mexico. And then the next day, a second pipeline burst in the Caspian Sea. Now, I want to highlight a tweet about this situation. And I know, like, no one wants to hear about tweets. Like, they're just fleeting things on the internet that go away. And they're not really important. But I want to talk about this tweet because it's from a verified account. And everything it says is completely wrong. Completely stupid. And when when people talk about misinformation and stuff like that, keep in mind this is information that many of the liberal establishment do not consider to be misinformation. Um, so, the liberal conspiracy theorist, Louise Minch, I mean, it's just a hilariously bad tweet about this. Um, if you're unfamiliar, Louise Minch was mostly relevant right before and right after Trump was elected. She is a quintessential example of... I guess what people will call blue anon, like she's obsessed with the idea of Trump secretly being Russian. Um, so anyway, here is the tweet quote. Yeah, sex is great, but you, have you ever watched at Joe Biden blow up two Russian oil and gas companies pipelines under the sea? with zero human casualties to defend America from ransomware attacks as he told Putin he would, end quote. So, not only is this tweet very silly, to put it mildly, I mean, it's, it's a terrible sentiment all around because destroying pipelines and causing underwater flames... Is that better than sex? Like, what the hell is that about? And all of that is besides the point because she tweeted this with a video of that Caspian Sea oil fire blowing up. And it's all besides the point because it was an Azerbaijani gas company and the explosion was triggered by a mud volcano. Everything she says in the tweet is made up. And also the fire that happened the day before in the Gulf of Mexico is more of like a conventional pipe leak that caught on fire. So 
It's all just a bunch of crap. But that brings us to our next segment. Top 10 reasons why an underwater pipeline may burst. The top 10 list. Let's get into it. Let's go. Hey, do you hear about this? Hey, listen. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. Tonight's top 10 list, sponsored by J.C. Penny. When it fits, you feel it. Top 10 ways an underwater pipeline may burst. Number 10, a billionaire, like Jeff Bezos, for example, crashes their novelty rocket ship into a pipeline. (laughs) Number nine, a dolphin with one of those six-pack of plastic things stuck on its nose frantically crashes into the pipe. That would be a tragedy. Number eight, Oil companies start more underwater fires and start charging admission to the show. That sounds like a fireworks show if I ever saw one. (laughs) Number seven. The heating water temperature in the the ocean softens the steel beam pipes. (laughs) They say jet fuel can't melt steel beams. What about hot water? Number six, rednecks shooting pistols into the water on the 4th of July. Yes, I, from my experience, rednecks love to shoot guns on 4th of July into the water. What a better place to shoot than that. Number five, Colombians who were hired to assassinate a Haitian president accidentally shoot a pipeline instead. More on that later. Number four. Aliens are sabotaging oil to send us a warning to stop. Yeah, we haven't figured out the warning yet if that's the case. (laughs) Number three. Underground lizard people are sabotaging oil to send us a warning to stop. Yeah, we still haven't figured it out yet, but uh, maybe that's what they're doing. Number two. Teenagers play a prank. Nice and simple. Teenager prank. I could see that happening. And finally, number one. The top reason why an underwater pipeline may burst. Profit-motivated oil companies will always cut corners for more profit. Alright, and so I have a pretty big segment scheduled for the rest of the show. I will be talking all about the uh, assassination of the president in Haiti. So, I think this is a big story, um, and I think it ties into a lot of the things I was talking about, uh, from 
Eric Prince trying to buy a private military in Ukraine to uh, the Taliban uh, taking over in Afghanistan to, you know, I think this story really encapsulates a lot of the trends in geopolitics that I like to talk about. And uh, hopefully, as I go through the details of the story, I'm able to spell out exactly why. Okay! So, if you aren't familiar, if you haven't been watching the news, Haiti's president, I believe it's called, he's, his name was Jovenel Moise, he was assassinated on July 7th. His wife was also injured in the attack. Um, so the gunmen who were at the time unidentified, I'll talk more about their identity in a minute, uh, they stormed the president's house at about 1 a.m. And so I want to give some background on President Moise. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right, because that is how I will continue to say it. I, I think you'll get a pretty good idea of how he governed. Even if you don't know for sure how he governed, I think this will give some insight into that. His history, like, it really spells out what type of politician he was. So before his political career, President Moise was quite the capitalist. Groove, smashing, yay capitalism! <laughs> uh, his first company was an auto parts store, and then he, sh then shortly after that, he got into the banana business. We don't have the money, Pop. All his money in the banana stand. And then after that, he started partnering with a water processing company. And then by 2012, he got much further into the banana business. He started creating banana fields that operated as a free trade zone. And if, if you're unfamiliar with that terminology, like free trade zones are basically an area of a country that has a different uh, m tax code and usually more lenient tax code. Uh, they they put this in place to incentivize businesses to operate in a specific area. And usually, at least in developing countries like Haiti, that area does a lot of exporting. So free trade zones are implemented to help an, a developing export economy, basically. In other words, it's a way to become more economically relevant by making it m more incentivized to trade with bigger developed countries rather than domestic trade. Like, you would get a bigger tax cut if you're growing bananas that, for these banana fields he grew, were ostensibly meant to go to Germany. What I read is only a few a few shipments of bananas ever reached Germany. I don't know where the rest went. But the idea is you'd get a more tax incentive to send bananas to Germany than to make bananas for Haitian people. And I say all of this because I think President Moise's history shows a lot about the way he governed. Like, he was very much a capitalist and he was very much governed as a neoliberal. And I think looking at the way he conducted his life before that makes it clear that that's basically what how he would govern. 
Um, for example, he positively compared himself to Trump, Donald Trump, but at the same time, he's kind of a celebrity. Like, he was known as the Banana Man. Why'd you put the bananas in there? George likes the bananas! So let him have bananas on the side! All right. But he's less of a celebrity than Trump, and I also think he's less of a nationalist, generally. He's more like a center-right capitalist. I would compare him someone to, like, Macron in France, but maybe maybe less pandery to social issues than Macron. And to give some context of his role in Haiti as perceived by UN peacekeepers, you know, the so-called UN peacekeepers have been in Haiti since 2004. And they only withdrew in 2017, around the same time that President Moise was elected. So this would suggest to me that the global capitalist order was satisfied with someone like Moise being in charge and didn't see a need to have their peacekeepers there, which I think says a lot about how he he was perceived by the global capitalist order. And when Moise was president, there were a lot of protests. Uh, and one of the biggest protests was this year, uh, because Moise, by most conventional understandings, was supposed to resign in February. They were supposed to have a new president. Uh, Moise was like, oh no, because of this or that complication, I'm supposed to give up power in this or that time. So, I, I'm not really sure of the details, the kind of like bureaucratic details that made this disagreement, but know that most people thought he should have resigned already. And those protests, those really big protests I was talking about, they were also not only in response to him, you know, holding on to power too long, but also his administration lifted subsidies on gas. And this, this caused a lot of the protests, and it also exemplifies his general approach to, like, deregulation in his capitalist background. So, I feel like I've done a good job of establishing how Moise governed and his role in society. Society. Let's move on. Um, let's get into the assassination. So... There were immediately reports after he was killed that the gunmen were speaking English and Spanish, which is strange because, as you probably know, in Haiti they speak French and French Creole, not English or Spanish. Um, the Miami Herald published an article on July 10th, and they did some investigation into the identity of the assassins and where they came from, so Miami Herald wrote, Quote, 17 Colombians and two Haitian Americans from South Florida are in custody in Haiti. A person who interviewed the detained Colombians in Haiti told the Miami Herald that the men claimed to have been recruited to do work in Haiti by an under-the-radar firm in Doral called CTU Security. It is run by a Venezuelan immigrant, Antonio Emmanuel Intriago Valera. 
Uh, going forward, I'm going to call him Intriago. That seems to be what the Miami Herald did, even though that's not his last of his last two names. <laughs> so anyway, um, and also, if you don't know, Doral is a suburb of Miami. They said it was a Doral firm. And just to piece this all together, uh, Antonio Intriago immigrated to the U.S. from Venezuela and runs a security company. Uh, he left Venezuela in 2009, and he is a Juan Guaido supporter. So you get the idea. He's right-wing, anti-Chavismo, anti-Maduro. He's what you'd expect from a Venezuelan immigrant who moves to Florida and starts a security company. Anyway, uh, back to the Miami Herald. They write, quote, Multiple sources in Haiti have confirmed that the detained men said they were hired by CTU security. And several of the men indicated they had been in Haiti for at least three months, some even longer. The men were hired to provide VIP security, one source in Haiti said, and were paid about $3,000 a month. The two Haitian Americans told the judge that they were hired as translators, but did not reveal who their employer was. Now, this does not seem like an amateur operation. I'll put that out there. I'll get more into the people behind it and the funding. Um, but there was a lot of people moving around internationally with lots of preparation. People stationed in Haiti for months. Like, this was not a small operation. Continuing from the article, quote, Interim Haitian police director Leon Charles said the suspects, including the Haitian Americans, confirmed that they worked for a company, quote, based in the U.S. and Colombia. They worked with the two Haitian Americans and a high-profile doctor here, end quote. The Miami Herald also cited an interview with a Colombian radio station. In it, the wife of one of the detained security guards said her husband had, quote, been hired by CTU, paid $2,700, and provided travel to the Dominic Dominican Republic to work as private security for powerful families. Now remember, he was sent to Dominican Republic. I'll get to that in a minute because that comes up in terms of planning the incident. Yeah, so I've kind of established the moving parts, who was where and what was going on, um, but now I want to focus more on the power brokers. Like I said, the owner of CTU is named Antonio Intriago, um, and Intriago's security company, CTU, is formally named the Counter-Terrorist Unit Federal Academy, LLC. But Intriago likely didn't plot the assassination himself, um, or he had not as much influence as you might suspect he of course his employees did the assassination but there's a lot more going on on july 11th reports began coming out that a haitian american uh doctor 
or a claimed doctor, he says that he is a doctor, named Christian Emmanuel Sanon, great name, great first name, by the way, uh, is accused of plotting the assassination. So, Haiti's National Police Chief said that Christian Emmanuel Sanon, quote, arrived by private plane in June with political objectives and contacted a private security firm to recruit the people who committed this act. Now, another thing to keep in mind about Sanon, he did have some political um, aspirations. He, it seems that he envisioned himself becoming the leader of Haiti, although it's not really clear how or why, because he just seems to be like some crank with political aspirations, but that doesn't mean you'll be elected after a president's assassinated. Uh, the police chief. The police chief claims that the the mercenaries were originally hired to protect Sanon, but that changed into the assassination plot. Also, when they raided Sanon's house, they found guns, bullets, and a DEA hat. And I don't know if he saw this clip, but when the assassination first happened. There was a clip going around of, of the assassins saying, shouting that they were the DEA. So this kind of corroborates him to the crime scene. And but uh, Daily Beast, I think some other outlets reported on this. They looked into it more, and I mean, they made it seem that Sanon did indeed have political ambitions in Haiti. But he may not have had the means to fund a coup. In other words, he might have been the ideal ideological apparatus of this operation, but he was not the one paying people to do it. Uh, Daily Beast writes, quote, The Miami Herald obtained public records which cast doubt on whether Sanon had the means to organize a coup. He has several inactive businesses in Florida, and although he describes himself as a doctor, he has no medical license in the state. Bankruptcy records show he was making a salary of $60,000 in 2013 and had $400,000 in debt. Some suspects arrested in the assassination have claimed they were paid as much as 3000 a month to take part in the plot, and Haiti authorities haven't explained how Sanon could afford to bankroll a coup. Now, before I move on, I do want to point out it's a little weird that they call it a coup because... An assassination is more accurate because, sure, Sanon had intentions of becoming a leader, but there wasn't really a coup plot. There was really just an assassination plot, and they were like, oh, well, we'll figure out the coup part later. That's what it seems like to me. The, like, the coup never happened. The assassination happened. 
And so the missing piece of the story, like where the funding comes from, uh, I have a New York Times story here. And in this story, they found that Intriago, the owner of the security company, and the indebted quote-unquote Dr. Sanin were meeting with the mercenaries throughout a year in the Dominican Republic, so that ties back into their radio interview that said her, where the woman said her husband was getting paid to go to the Dominican Republic, and they were meeting there with the the assassins, the mercenaries, and a third power broker. So. New York Times writes, quote, Among the participants in the meetings, one was Antonio Intriago, who owns the private security and equipment company that hired the former Colombian commandos. We know that. The other was Walter v- Vintamilla, who, let me tr- let me try that again. Vientimia, I think that's how you say it, Walter Vientimia, who leads a small financial services company in Miramar, Florida, called Worldwide Capital Lending Group. On Wednesday, the Haitian authorities accused him of helping to finance the assassination plot. And so the impact, I'm going to wrap up this segment but I really want to leave with a impact and tie this all together. We see in this the unity between right-wing mercenaries, financial institutions, and, I guess, crackpots who want political power. And you may notice that these three things were able to come together, assassinate a president, and do so without any immediately obvious help from the government, any government. The way they got help from the government, for sure, was diffused and indirect, like the mercenaries did have U.S. military training. But that's almost a relic of a different era where the U.S. was like directly training right-wing death squads in Colombia to do their bidding. Uh, with this assassination, do they even need the U.S. government anymore? What it seems like is the U.S. has outsourced so much of their military and intelligence that those things no longer need the U.S. to do their thing. They're able to do it without the state intervention, Because the state has outsourced so much power to these private power brokers. I'm trying to kind of create, craft a narrative that I want to really be the point of some of my deeper analysis of this show. And that is that society is just straight up changing. And the way it's changing is... Okay, I'll put it this way. So when Marx first started writing, what he, the first thing he wrote about is that it, there was a proliferation of German, German people who would go out into the woods, get firewood, and then get arrested for taking wood that was just out in nature. And... 
Marx was really interested in this because the 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 people who were getting arrested their ancestors had been going out into the woods to get firewood since the beginning of time or at least since the beginning of fire was in, discovered by germanic people or whatever and all of a sudden the political economy changes our conception of property begins to develop and now they can no longer go out into the woods and gather firewood this signified a complete change in the way we relate to the economy and i really want to hone in on this because I feel like this is a way that in my lifetime the economy is irre- irreversibly being changed. I believe the state governments have been, in the name of neoliberalism, outsourcing so much of what they do to private corporations. You don't need the U.S. military or U.S. intelligence to assassinate a leader or attempt a half-baked coup anymore. Because all of those instruments that the U.S. government used to do that, to commit coups and assassination, they have now all become like private military companies, private security And then there's enough people with enough money and financial backing that they can utilize those services that only 20, 30, 40 years ago would have been state power. But now they can just be hired to do state duties without ever interacting with the state. You know, people rightfully recognize that neoliberalism is not cool anymore. Donald Trump, like, really signified that. Even Biden, even the most neoliberal-ass politician like Joe Biden, he's a little different than someone like Bill Clinton or even... Obama, or definitely Hillary Clinton, where they are just neoliberal to the bone. Joe Biden, he's old enough that he still at least kind of makes gestures to a sort of Keynesian economics with his whole, like, oh, let's get infrastructure, man. But the cat's already out of the bag. There's no way we're going back to a Keynesian model. Biden wouldn't even want a Keynesian model. He just gestures towards it more than most American neoliberals. So neoliberalism is in decay. What's going to replace it? There's basically two options. There is the internationalist, pro-economic, and by economic, I mean capitalist, pro-free trade side who just wants to continue the neoliberal project as the sort of like neo-imperialist capitalist project. And then on the other side, there's like the nationalists, like the Donald Trump, the, the Bolsonaros, the Netanyahus, the Victor Orbans, they realize that state power is being uh, encroached upon by private enterprises. But, uh, of course, our system doesn't left, 
doesn't let left-wing voices have any impact. So the only thing that's able to resist against this privatization of state forces, like the realization of neoliberalism, is this sort of intense nationalism that wants to uh, concentrate everything into the the state order to combat the growing private sector power. This is the new conflict. I hate to say it, but like, if history is marked by two different competing ideological uh, impulses, in the 20th century, the two impulses were capitalism or communism. Now, there's very little, like, um, room for the left to breathe. Communism still doesn't have that role in, in the state power brokers that they used to when the Soviet Union still existed. So what's it's been replaced by either right-wing nationalism or right-wing neoliberalism. Both of them want an increase in state power. It's just the right-wing nationalism wants all the state power concentrated around the state. It's a very kind of antiquated view, in my opinion. It, it really reeks of an old-fashioned way of thinking. And then there's the potentially... Even more insidious in the long term. Oh, who am I kidding? They're both insidious as hell. A potentially just as insidious option in the long term, which is furthering neoliberalism, which will happen regardless. Like, even Trump was a neoliberal economically. He just wanted the state to have more impact and be united um, on those sort of neoliberal decisions. Anyway, I've been ranting a lot, and I just want to make clear that um, my ultimate, ultimate point is I think we're past the point of no return. Private companies already have too much power to really be reined in by the government. The government itself doesn't actually have any intention of reining anyone in. And so we're kind of at a point in history where... I think the private capitalist power, the power of corporations to do state-like or pseudo-state-like maneuvering, I think uh, that will just keep happening and the cat's already out of the bag. There's no controlling it. And I think more and more people are going to increasingly see that. It just takes a long time for society to, like society's views to catch up with the material conditions. It's kind of like you could see the fact that China was growing at a huge rate, like, that would be, like, you could have seen that in the early 2000s, but the U.S. government did not, or um, they're not really doing anything about it until it's much too late. Now they're trying to do a Cold War with China. It's already way too late. Anyway, I'm kind of at the rambling on and on part of the show, so... That has been The Society Show. Thank you for listening to the 
season five premiere. We have a lot of great guests planned for this season. This should be the only solo episode in the foreseeable future. I have lots of great guests planned. And uh, in the meantime, you can follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Christian is cool is spelled I-Z. Christian I-Z cool. You can also write into the podcast at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave a voicemail if you want a voicemail played on the show at 971-238-4138. And if you missed any of this, check out the website societyshow.net. It has all the information and it has a link to the new Patreon. I'm so happy to be back. It was hard taking two weeks off. There was a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about. And I'm so happy we're recording in the Lorena Bobbitt Theater. One last announcement I'll make is uh, this this room where we're recording is a, uh, a lot more friendly towards um, making it into a full-blown studio. So I would like to have some live in-person guests rather than recording all online. And that is something to look forward to. In the meantime, again, thank you for listening to The Society Show! Hi everyone, this is William Hung, so thank you for supporting this show. I see dead people. Goodbye, we love you, we will be back in some form.